Today's second Bible reading will be from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. You can follow along in the Pew Bibles on page 1226 or on the screen. Verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him, that you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of God, love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. This is word of the Lord. Thanks. Now, the words uh, that we'll be considering this evening uh, from that passage, they're in fact quite piercing words, and they are words that should cause change in our hearts if we submit ourselves to the word of God. And so let's pray that that might be so, that these piercing words will in fact change our lives tonight. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is powerful. It is piercing. It penetrates into our deepest recesses. And we pray that by your word and the working of your spirit, you will change our lives, that our lives will be worthy of the gospel to which we have been called. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before I was inducted as the minister here in November last year, 
And in fact, even before that, during Bible college, as uh, Yvonne and myself were considering to enter pastoral ministry, perhaps unknown to many of you, was the great burden we felt and we still continue to feel. The great burden of thinking about pastoral ministry, the great internal tension that we feel. Because it's a take on the responsibility of being pastor of God's people, God's precious people, and they are you. I mean, who would dare take on such a task without careful consideration, without humble prayers, without seeking out the will of God? Who would dare take on such a task lightly or flippantly? And so I was and still am acutely aware of the demands expected of pastors, the responsibility, the task that lays ahead, and it continues to uh, bear a weight on my heart and Yvonne's heart as we minister and serve in this way. A verse that continues to remind us of this weight is what the Apostle Paul said to the young minister, Timothy. And he said these words, he said to his young protege in 1 Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Now that's good. That's what we are to do. It's non-negotiable. We meet to pray, to hear Scripture read and taught. But then the Apostle Paul, he went on to say this, Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Now as you reflect on those words, can you see why it is such a big burden? Do you notice those words there? Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. So what does that mean? Well, it means... What it means is that the minister you started off with should not be the same minister you continue with. Year in, year out, your minister is meant to progress. He's meant to grow in godliness, in faith, in grace, in love, in the likeness of Christ. The minister you started off with should not be the same minister you continue with. And so who would dare take on such a task to be a pastor? That the task of knowing that your life, not just on Sundays, but every day, is always on display. Criticize, scrutinize, assess by everyone. You can always watch and see how I talk to Yvonne, how I treat my wife, how I lead my family, how often we sit together in church, really. How I train or disciple or discipline my children. You'll see how I deal with hardships that I, I have to endure. You'll see how I have to handle grief. You'll see how I teach, how I love, how I care, how I speak, how I act. It's always on display. It's easy, isn't it, to live a life without the watchful eye of anyone. Now, of course, I didn't tell you that so that you would feel sorry for me or to feel pity or to stop expecting. Instead, I told you that so that you might do the opposite, so that you would continue to expect. This is exactly what you are to expect. You are meant to see my progress every year. 
But of course, here comes the kicker. Here comes the surprise. Because not only should you expect all of that of me, but I also expect it of all of you, the Church of Christ. In fact, we should all expect this of each other, where we are all progressing, growing together. We're meant to see it year in, year out, so that next year it will be all more godly than we are this year. In fact, it's not just us who should expect this. It is what Almighty God expects of his own church. And so I wonder whether this is something we sometimes forget. As Christians, we all know what we were saved from. We were saved from sin, from death, from hell. But sometimes we forget what we are saved for. We are saved for God. And we are saved for godliness, which means there must be progress in our life as we walk the life of a Christian. And so our topic this evening, the fifth in our series on the church, the church God sanctifies. Remember our first week? It was the church God calls, which is also the church God loves. And the church God loves is the church God unites. And last week we saw the church God loves and unites is the church God equips. And today it is the church God sanctifies. That is, you and me and every one of us, we must be growing in godliness, in holiness, being more pure and righteous, more like Christ day by day. And so whatever burden I expressed earlier about pastoral ministry, a burden that we in fact should all bear together, it's in fact a joyful burden because it is good for us. It is good for us. And so let's have a look at this passage. Now let me encourage you, what we do here as our pattern, we, we hear sermons with the Bible open because we want to be looking down to see that this is what God is saying. So eyes looking down, not closed, just down and up. Now as we look at this passage, you can see why God would sanctify his church. Why God would make it holy. Why God would move his people from one degree of glory to another. Because look at how you and I once were. We were all walking in the wrong way. That's the language you see, the, the language of walking. It's the metaphor walking which speaks of how we are living. And you'll notice here that we were once walking where our minds, our hearts, our activity were all corrupted or depraved. Just have a, a, a short reflection on your own life before you became a Christian and the difference. Before God opened your eyes, before the gospel grip your heart before you could see with clarity the wickedness and evilness of sin what did you once allow yourself to think or to believe or to do well that's how we once walked and we see here verse 17 so I tell you this insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer walk or live as the Gentiles do in the fertility of their thinking. So you see, before God opened up our minds to think and to see, 
Our thinking was futile. It was vain. Take, for example, greed. Take, for example, greed. How much of our world think that being greedy is okay? What percentage of the world think that being greedy is okay? We say according to the Bible and according to God, greed is never okay because it is always wrong and evil. But how much of our world think that it's not just okay, but that it is good? Greed is the way you get ahead in life. That's how life works. You be greedy, you get more. But what that reveals is the fertility of the mind. It is vain in its thinking. It is blind. And what do you end up with when you think greed is okay? Well, you get consumerism. You get materialism. You get people clinging on to stuff, trying to live for stuff, try to get more stuff, at the detriment of their own honesty, at their own integrity, at the detriment of any concern of others. We see families torn apart because of greed. But it always starts out small. And I suspect we've all experienced this, done this, thought this. It starts out small, just wanting something that belongs to someone else. And then it grows. It moves to perhaps even fudging the tax return so that I might get more back. And then it grows, and, and, and it grows to living from one purchase to the next, just getting the bigger, the greater, the more expensive, and just living for stuff. That's what greed does. And what happens when such people end up le leading corporations? leading countries where you end up with corrupted governments lining their own pockets while their own people die out of poverty. We see that in Nigeria and Somalia and North Korea and Pakistan and Cambodia. Or you end up with, a few years ago, the global financial crisis. How many lives were destroyed? How many people committed suicide? And it started off with greed. You see, the futile mind just cannot see that that is wrong. And that was what we once were. The mind was futile, but then the heart was also dark and blind. A heart that is ignorant, just does not know that it is wrong and evil and wicked. That the Bible often describes the human heart as a heart of stone. And so we see verse 18, have a look. They were darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. A hard, dark, black heart. What happens? Well, it leads to depraved behavior. Look at verse 19 now. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continued lust for more. Now let me ask you, does that describe our world today? So much of our world, just indulging in any kind and every kind of impurity and loving it and wanting more and more. Now just reflect on the type of festivals we celebrate in our country. I used to live in Sydney and I lived on King Street in Newtown, Sydney. Now, if you are not aware, King Street is where they have the Mardi, Mardi Gras parade each year. Over 300,000 people watching, spectating, looking. Half-naked people parading down the streets of Newtown. Now, let, let me just add, I'm never around when it's on anyway, but that's what happens. 
Now, what does that tell you? A festival like that that is celebrated in our country, does it tell you that people are concerned for God? Does it tell you that people have their hearts close to God or far away? Does it speak of purity, a mind that is self-controlled, or does it speak of debauchery, impurity, promiscuity? What do you think? Would you rather celebrate a parade like that or something else? I mean, doesn't that just describe what we read here? Indulging in every kind of impurity with a continued lust for more. And when you see promiscuity is encouraged, when sexual immorality is commonplace, which we see all over the place, the ads, TV, movies, shows, it is destructive for society, not good for children, not good for relationships, honest relationships, not good for families, not good for the sanctity of marriage. But you see, a dark heart leads to depraved behaviour. But a dark heart doesn't just happen out there in the world. You see, it begins in the privacy of the home. Now, speaking with our safe church unit in our denomination, I've been informed that the number of people within the church, this is within the church, who struggle and are addicted to pornography, it is extraordinary. There are so many, even in the church. It is huge. But it must not be for the people of God. For the people of God must be godly, progress in Christ's likeness. And so let me now just add, if you are struggling in this way, it is a strong addiction which you cannot get out alone. And so if you are struggling, do speak out and seek help. Speak to your growth group leaders. Seek out an elder. Come and speak to me. You can't do it alone. But you see here, a futile mind and a dark heart leads to depraved behavior. And that was how we were once walking, the wrong way. But now Paul reminds us, you can no longer walk that way. You were once like that no more. You've turned around. You've repented. You've gone the other way, the right way, the straight and narrow. And so Paul, Paul says, don't you remember what Christ has called you to? He's called you to adoption, to the inheritance of heaven, to Christ-likeness, to godliness. You've put off your old self. You, you've been made new. You've been given a new mind, a new heart. You, you've been made a new person. So live that way. Make progress in that way. And so we see this from verses 22 onwards. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so do you see what that says there? It says all of us, every single one of us, what is expected and what we are expect, to expect to see in each other is nothing less than what God is like. So that if you look at me and watch my life, you should see something of what God is like. And as I look at you and watch how you live and watch how you progress, I should see something of God, something of the holiness and righteousness of God. And what does that look like? 
Well, Paul now he lists a series of expectations that ranges from our speech to our character to our behaviour. And so, first, our speech, our words. Now, do you know the old playground rhyme? Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Heard of that before? Kids say it on, on the playground. Is it true? Well, it's so, so untrue. Because words can be so hurtful. Words, just mere words, can be so damaging, especially if they are untrue and false. And so let me ask you, have you ever experienced being falsely accused, wrongly judged, maliciously slandered, verbally abused? And if that has happened, do you think you walk away from that unscathed? Of course not. It's so deeply hurtful. It's like you've been stabbed in the heart with just words. But you see, that must not be the life of a Christian. Look at verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. If we belong to one another, we speak well to one another. We speak words that, that, that don't tear down but build up. I mean, this is for all of us to remember. Every word I say must be building up. Words of encouragement, words of support, words of love, words even of rebuke if it's done in love to build up. And so we see verse 29 now. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And so this is a good reminder for all of us, myself included, how we speak to one another how we speak about one another. For there must be godly progress in our speech. But now we see not just our speech, but our character must be changed, transformed, become more godly, walking in the right way, making progress. And here we see anger. Getting angry, depending on what it is about, it's not itself wrong. There is such a thing as righteous anger. But it's what you do once you get angry that's important. And so what do you do? Lash out. Rage. Seek revenge. Attack. Or be so shaped by the gospel that, that you desire peace and reconciliation. In a marriage course uh, that Yvonne and myself run, what we would do in one of our sessions with couples planning on marriage is we spend some time speaking about how you communicate as future husband and wives and what you do when you have a conflict, how you speak and when you do have a conflict. And one of the passages we look at is this one here. A principle we learn here that Yvonne and myself, we apply to our own marriage, but really a principle for all of us. In all relationships, look at verse 26. In your anger, not saying that you can't get angry, but in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. That is, as far as it is possible, resolve it with God. 
confess it to God. Pray that God might lift the burden, resolve it with the brother or sister, and then go to sleep peacefully. And then we read, And do not give the devil a foothold. Because what happens when you allow anger to build up inside? What happens when you feel like you're venting, you're, you're boiling inside? Well, what it will do is that it will continue to eat away at you, gnawing at your heart, darkening your heart, suffocating your outlook. And who does it affect? Now, I've done many pastoral visits and speaking to people and talking about grievances and all that. And one wise man, he said to me, well, if I am angry and I keep that anger in my heart and I harbour that bitterness, it doesn't affect anyone else. It's just like me drinking my own poison. It just affects me. You see, to live this way affects yourself. And it is to allow the devil a foothold. Now one great theologian, he once said this, John Stott. He said, The devil loves to lurk around angry people, hoping to be able to exploit the situation to his own advantage by provoking them into hatred or violence or a breach of fellowship. Now, isn't that so true? When you're angry, it's far easier to sin, to lose control, to rage. Going to bed. Plotting revenge rather than going to sleep. Thinking about ill of someone else. Thinking about how you might get someone else back. Cursing someone else instead of going to sleep. That is to allow the devil to have a foothold. It's in fact to do the devil's work. And so what are we to do instead? Well, what we are to do is to get rid of all that is wicked and evil. Now, as we look at this list from verses 31 onwards, we may not realize that these are in fact bad things, evil things, but they are. I mean, it's often quite accepted in our world that this is just a part of life. You do this and it's okay, but according to this, it's not okay. Look at verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, not just some. Don't be selective, not just say, I'll, I'll just keep this. I'll get rid of those because they're inconvenient, but I'll keep some bitterness in me. No, it says get rid of all bitterness. That is all resentment. Those with a hard heart, unwilling to reconcile, unwilling to move on in peace, get rid of it. Get rid of all bitterness. Then we read, rage and anger cannot be justified. Rather, the Christian is to be so self-controlled, even in their anger. Even if they're blasted at, they remain self-controlled. Brawling and slander, we read now. How you speak about someone without them there. Be so careful for all of us, myself included. A very important principle I learned at Bible college is to never triangulate relationships. At my, at my initial meetings with our elders and board, we made this clear. We never triangulate relationships. And so what that means is, if I have something against a brother or sister here, what should I do? Speak to someone else about it, so that they might speak to someone else about it, so that it might, it might eventually get back to that person. I've triangulated the relationship, and that is a no-go. 
not the way to reconcile, not the way to live at peace, not the way to fix up things. If I have something against a brother or sister, what should I do? I speak to that brother and sister first. I make peace, I reconcile, I seek forgiveness, I apologise, I work it out first with that person. That is to go direct, that is the principle of the Bible. Do not triangulate relationships. And so if you come to me to tell me about someone else and you expect me as the pastor to go and tell off someone else, I will not do it. That is to triangulate relationship. What I would encourage you to do is, if you have a grievance, you need to speak to that brother or sister. Try that first. If that doesn't work, I can come with you, but it needs to be person to person. No triangles. And a very important principle that we often forget. So no brawling, no slander, along with every form of malice. What does that mean? It means plotting evil, wanting, enjoying the failures of others, having that contentment when you see others fall, wishing evil on others, cursing others. That is not on. Instead, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as in Christ God forgave you. Which means no Christian should ever say, I can never find it in my heart to forgive that person. Now you might have very good reason for why you can't forgive, but there are no exceptions given here. A Christian must not be able to say that. For we must remember, we've been forgiven much, much more. And for us to be forgiven, it costs Jesus his life. And so all Christians must always come to that point. It might take some time. Must always come to the point of being able to forgive, to live at peace as far as it is possible. And so I want you to now have a look again over verses 31 and 32. And I want you to ask yourself, are any of these weighing on your own heart, bearing on your own conscience? Do they sit on your heart, weigh heavily, gnawing at it? Because if there's anything, you would agree with me that it's just not good for your heart. It just feels so heavy. It's not light. You can't go free. And so what should you do? Well, if that is you, then let the word of God here correct you. If that is true, let the word of God here rebuke you. If that is true, let the word of God here encourage you to walk the right way, to progress in godliness, in Christ-likeness. Our next Sunday evening, we will together be sharing in the Lord's Supper. And so if there is something that bears and weighs on your heart, you have to come clean. You have to come clear with God. Confess it. Expose it. Seek forgiveness and it will be forgiven. Come to God. Have your heart cleansed. Be pure before our Lord. But this next week, if there is something against a brother or sister, the estranged family member, take this week to reconcile. Work hard at that. Seek strength from God to do that and he will give it. 
do that this week before the Lord's Supper next week. You see, for not to do so, to allow sin to go unchecked, that is to grieve the Holy Spirit. It is to disappoint God. Look at verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Instead, what are we to be like? Well, we are to be like God. Imitate God. Love like God. Now you can tell when someone has the love of God in them. Their, their life is just so filled with joy and contentment and satisfaction. Their concern is not for themselves but for others. You can see that there is love in people when they have the love of God. And so we see verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so our character as the people of Christ must be characterized by love all the time. We will fail. We will make mistakes. We will hurt each other intentionally or not. But yet at the same time, it is meant to be characterized by love so that there is forgiveness, so that there was always the atmosphere of grace. That's how we are to make progress. And we are to make progress in all these areas. Now finally, our speech, our character, but also our behavior must be making progress as well. We must be walking the right way in all aspects of our life. Now here's a point here for those who steal, those who are lazy. Christians must never be lazy because it's unloving to be lazy. You're just, in a sense, a leech like what we read here. We must be hardworking. We must be people of integrity, of honesty. And so look at verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. That's important for all of us to hear. And now finally, a verse similar to what Israel Falau quoted. God will not tolerate sin. God is so holy and perfect, will not tolerate sin. For the church God sanctifies must be sanctified, must live out the sanctified life, must be so different to the world around us. Look at verse 3. But among you... There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. No look, no second look, no thinking, not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And why? Why such a high standard laid upon us as Christians? Why command this of us? Well, this is where Christians, we cannot hide behind political correctness. We cannot sugarcoat the Christian message, nor should we fear offending. If this is what God says, then this is what God says. You see, in the end, it's a matter of heaven and hell. In the end, it's a matter of life and death. In the end, it's a matter of whether I'll face the wrath of God or I will escape it. And so have a look at our final verses, 5 to 7. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. 
No one. Not one, not some. Not some will make it through, but none. And then we read on, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes to those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. And so the principle and the teaching is very clear, isn't it? Walk the right way. Walk the right way, the straight and narrow. Our speech, our character, our behavior must be getting more and more godly. Mine and yours. We must be making progress each and every year so that when you get to your 90s, however old God might give you, you'll be so beautiful in your character. And a wonderful blessing of our church is that we have many of those, in fact, some who are 80s and 90s, but yet so beautiful in their character. They've had years to progress and grow. For this is the church God sanctifies. Which means now, in the end, there is really only one way to live. And the one way to live is God's way. God's way, the right way, the holy way. Now, I do need to make crystal clear at this point, in case you think otherwise. We who are disciples of Jesus, we who believe in Jesus, we are already saved by grace. We are already assured of heaven. We are already saved by the death of Jesus. It's not our efforts, our hard work that will save us, but our progress in godliness, in holiness, in Christ-likeness, they are the fruit that is expected of those who are already saved. We're saved first, then we learn to live. And our living is evidence that we are saved. And so we are saved by grace, but now we live up to it. And so let me ask you now, our church, how do you think we are going in terms of our godliness, our holiness? Have you seen any progress in me over the years? I mean, that's a dangerous question to ask, especially now. So don't answer now. But we shouldn't be afraid to ask such a question. Nor should we be afraid to ask each other that question. Have you seen any progress in me? Have you seen any progress in each other? Have you seen any progress in yourself? You see, we are the church God sanctifies, so there must be progress in all our speech our attitude, our character, our behavior. Now I suspect here this evening there will be some of us here thinking one of two things. Either some of us might be thinking, I'm actually okay. I'm doing okay. I'm not that bad. I've got all of this covered. Everyone around me, they look okay as well. I'm pretty, pretty good. Or some of us here might be thinking, I'm completely hopeless. I cannot break my habitual sin. I haven't seen any progress. I'm so filled with guilt. My heart is so heavy. I don't think I can please God in any way. One of two. Now, if you are the first, if you really think that you are okay, this doesn't really apply to you. What well, means that you're Jesus, which you're not. Or it just means that you have not grasped the standard of godliness and holiness that is demanded by God. 
And so we have to genuinely, sincerely ask ourselves, is there any pride in my life at all? Any pride? Any area of my life where I lift my head high and I'm so proud of myself? Is there any area where I express greed? Have I been selfish in any ways? Am I harboring bitterness in my heart? Am I careful with my words? Do I speak harshly to that person all the time? Do I allow my eyes to wander on the street, on the screen? Last week after our evening service, one of our brothers here, he asked a very good question that got me to reflect on this. He asked, so what has God been teaching you? It's a great question to ask, isn't it? To ask each other, what has God been teaching you? In fact, it was a question our elders asked each other at our elders retreat earlier this year. It's a question that, that, that gets us to reflect is God working in my heart? Is God exposing my sin? Is God revealing to me areas in which I must repent? Two weeks ago, I met up with an older man, a, a godly Christian man who, who I became friends with when I was at Bible college. He's up in Sydney, and each time he flies down to Melbourne, we catch up for breakfast. And he keeps me and the ministry in his prayers, a, a godly, wonderful man. And he asked me that same question, what has God been teaching you lately? Because when we meet up, he wants to see that I am progressing, that I am growing, that I'm doing well spiritually, that I'm killing my sins. And so I would tell him of my struggles and the things I need prayer for. He would pray for me and I would pray for him. Perhaps that's a question we need to ask each other more. What has God been teaching you lately? It was the Puritan, John Owen, who once said this. He said, Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lust. What did he mean? If you want to grow in godliness, in holiness, you have to walk over your sins. You have to kill your sins. In fact, he went on to say, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. But now, if you're sitting here and you're one of those who think the second, that is, I'm hopeless. I feel so weighed down by the guilt of my sins, I can't please God in any way. Now, what you need to hear is that you are saved not by your effort, but by grace alone, but by Christ alone. If this is the church God sanctifies, he will sanctify you. He will do his good work in you. There is no way that we can become sinless in this life, but we must go on sinning less. Did you notice that distinction there? We cannot be sinless in this life, but we must go on sinning less. It was John Newton, the slave trader, the one who wrote the, the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He was weighed down by his own sins. He was unfaithful. He was debauched. He, he had many women on, on these ships. He traded, with sla traded slaves, ship slaves around. He was so 
racked with guilt. But then when he read the word of God and he heard of grace and understood the love of Christ, his life was completely changed, became a minister, became one who loved Christ, wanted to serve him with his life. But yet even though that happened to him, he did not become perfect. He wanted to grow in godliness, wanted God to sanctify him, but he was not perfect. We cannot be perfect in this world, but he said this, which is, a, I think, a wonderful reminder for all of us. He said, I'm not the man I ought to be. I'm not the man I wish to be. And I'm not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not the man I used to be. A wonderful, wonderful quote for us to remember. God will sanctify. This is the church God sanctifies, and he will do his good work. He will do his good work in us. And so finally, what do you think, church? How do you think we are going? How do you think you're going? I mean, this verse, the Apostle Paul said, everyone must see your progress. Wholly give yourself to it so that everyone may see your progress. Let that be the reminder for all of us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus in whom we find full forgiveness for all our sins and failings. We thank you that we can be cleansed, our heart made pure by Christ. And so help us, give us the grace to live the holy life you've called us to. Expose to us where we do fail. Cause us to fall to our knees and seek forgiveness. And know with full assurance that it is full and done in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've heard some good things from God's word and some very practical things about how to uh, progress in our Christian uh, walk. And we've got some questions for John um, that I think will give us more, hopefully, uh, practical answers. I'm progressing slowly. I fall into the same sins how can I progress faster in mm. sanctification? Good question. Extremely good question. Progress doesn't mean exponential growth. It's just progressing. So that tomorrow will be a better day than today. But if you're one who falls into the same sin, it exposes that we need each other. God uses each other for each other. And so if this is you, I suspect it might be some habitual sin. But you need to speak to a brother or sister so that someone might hold you accountable. Pray with you, pray for you. But you must be progressing. Even though it's slow, it is still progressing. And so we must all be growing. It could be fast, it could be slow, but really genuine growth often takes time. It's just like physical training. You're not going to get a six-pack over one night of exercise. It will take time. Some of you got that, but anyway... It'll take time. <laughs> Next question, please. Is there a place for banter or joking about each other, especially in our Aussie culture? Uh, it, in relation to unwholesome yeah. talk and uh, yeah, our think, language? I, I think uh, I, I love to banter myself. <laughs> Obviously like, there is. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like to bag out people, but I'm always cautious that I don't cross some line. I think this is where um, 
we can't be legalistic. It, it doesn't mean that we can't have fun with each other. And in Australian banter, there, there is a place for that, but it can be clean. I think that's, that's what we need to be conscious of. It can't be unwholesome and dirty. Last one. Jesus demonstrated anger in the temple. Is it okay for us to be angry like that? Mm. Yeah. So, excellent question. Now, if you're Jesus, you can, but we're not. So the anger of Jesus is always pure and perfect. And so what he was expressing, we did uh, the Gospel of John recently, what Jesus was expressing is, in a sense, something that we can't really express because he is the unique Son of God who has a unique relationship with God the Father. And at the temple, he sees things into the hearts of the people that we don't see. So the, the short answer is, no, we can't be like that. But there is a place for righteous anger. I mean, if um, an example, if a married couple, one commits adultery, there is a rightness of, of anger there. You, you shouldn't have been unfaithful to me. But what do you do in that anger? Do you lash out? Do you rage? Or you work hard, as hard as it is, to reconcile. So what's important is anger. There is a right anger. There are wrong angers. But what you do in that anger, do not sin. Thanks, John. Thanks, there were other questions um, that were asked, great questions. Um, we only got time for a few tonight. But if you want to talk to John afterwards about the questions you had, um, I'm sure John will be happy to uh, try to answer those. Uh, we're going to sing.